Welcome to this edition of On Politics. I'm Dr. Eric Morrow from Tarleton State University, and I'm glad to be with you again this week for another episode uh, right here on KTRL 90.5 FM and also available on SoundCloud or wherever you download your podcast. And you, of course, can listen online each week at tarletonradio.com. Uh, all of those options available to you either during the show or after so that you can stay up with the latest episodes uh, as well as the uh, interesting issues and interviews that we have on this show from week to week. I know I've had a few weeks here where I've been offering commentary and reflection on critical issues. Uh, We will get back to interviews in the weeks ahead, Uh, but right here in the middle of this pandemic Uh, in the middle of all the challenges that we're facing in an election year, uh, with all of the issues that are going on, uh, one of the things that I've wanted to focus on was looking at how a system like ours, a federalist system, we'll talk about and explain that here in a moment, uh, is impacted uh, by a pandemic and what are some of the challenges and unique types of issues that go along with that. And, And I bring this question up because as we look at how the pandemic has been addressed uh, by countries around the world. And we look at uh, other democratic states. And again, what I mean by state here is a nation state. So we look at how this has been addressed in Germany or France or the Czech Republic or Spain or Italy. Uh, We see some examples of how the, the state moved very early on Uh, to issue mandates, uh, to require masks to be worn, uh, to issue stay-at-home orders in an attempt to uh, curb uh, infection rates uh, and to save lives, uh, to try to address this early on. Now, we we have to have the caveat here of some of these decisions were made early on with Uh, assumptions about what this was and what was happening. Uh, We're still learning and we will be learning for a while how this virus works, how it spreads, uh, what are are the the factors and issues and consequences and so on that go with it. But you did have leaders in some countries that stepped out early on and said, we have to do these particular things uh, in order to uh, flatten the curve, uh, to make sure that our healthcare Uh, uh, resources and infrastructure can stay up with this, but also to try to uh, curb infections and to to keep the virus from spreading. And some of those have been very successful. We see in some countries in Europe, I've been in the Czech Republic, it's it's one example I would say of, of a country that's been successful with this. And it was that early intervention at the level of the nation state uh, that that did have an impact and did al- allow for that curve uh, to be flattened, for infection rates to drop, and for these countries to start moving back in a direction of trying to resume some sense of normalcy economically, socially, and so forth. Uh, now, the question may be raised because of that, why can't we do that in the U.S.? Why? What, what, what are the unique challenges that go with our system of government in responding to a crisis like this, because it is so unique. It is unprecedented uh, in our modern times in terms of its uh, impact and its uh, uh, the, the impact globally uh, as it has had over the last few months. And so that does raise questions. Uh, it raised questions too, in terms of analyzing 
how we respond to a crisis like this within our system of government uh, and what do we learn from this going forward and knowing what we need to do. Uh, my question here today, or really the, the theme of this show and looking at federalism and the challenges related to the pandemic, uh, is to ask, uh, is the Trump presidency a victim of federalism? Uh, now, that gets to the political aspects of it, is that we're looking at how a specific administration has responded to this particular crisis, and is there more that they should have done or could do even now, uh, or do we have a system that creates so many types of challenges that the response is what we get. I mean, what what the Trump presidency, what the Trump administration has been able to do is, is a product of how we govern ourselves. And some would look at that and say, well, yes, of course it is, because it, it does bring together that mixture of the structure of how we govern ourselves with the politics of it and the current situation, who we have in the White House, who's around him offering advice and direction. Uh, all of those factors come into play. Um, and so I don't want to generalize it here in, in the sense of, of trying to, to, to come up necessarily with a thesis here that says, okay, this is what actually happened. I'm, I'm really asking the question. And I want to, through today's show, look at some aspects of this, really beginning with a, a little background, a history, as we would say, of, of federalism. How has this developed? Now, I, I start this out and the reason why, one of the reasons why I'm doing this is because in our government classes that we teach here, working with students, both looking at state government and federal government, uh, this is a very difficult concept uh, for students to understand. They don't have a lot of background in it. They hear about it maybe in their history classes. Uh, most people accept it. They hear the word and say, well, yes, we have a federal government, uh, but they they don't really understand the, the background and the development of this over time. And I think that is so critical in our engagement with government today in understanding current policy issues and why we get the policy outcomes that we do, how government works or doesn't work. What are the challenges to the way we govern ourselves today? We really have to understand uh, this concept of federalism and how it has developed uh, in our country over time. And so I want to take you back a little bit and go through some of the, the critical information that we, we talk about in our classes, trying to help students understand this, but also really to, to help you look at this uh, through the lens of history, uh, but also through the uniqueness of this current crisis that we're in and where all of that comes together. So when we look back historically, one of the things that uh, really, or where we should start is going back to the colonies. Uh, now that goes way back. I know you're thinking, oh wow, we've got a long ways to go, but we're gonna summarize this and keep it uh, brief and concise here for the sake of our time. But we have to go back to a time when uh, there wasn't the nation state. There wasn't the United States of America. There were 13 individual colonies, all with their own systems of government, all with their own internal structures and charters and the way that they uh, did things and, and how they were related to whatever government or to whatever charter organization structured that in the beginning. I mean, it was very, very diverse. And this is, of course, one of the, the roots of our 
uh, founding in terms of this diversity and, and trying to bring one nation out of many different uh, colonies, many different cultures, political cultures that were there uh, in the beginning. And, and so we go back to these colonies and we said, well, well, look, the colonies were first and those colonies will become states and those states will carry on on those traditions and cultures that were established in those colonies. And there was an early attempt uh, in, in the, that attempt to bring everyone together. The Articles of Confederation really recognized that. And this was a, a primary concern through the articles and on into the the formulation of the Constitution, that, that the rights of each individual colony, now state, uh, would be subverted to the power of a federal government. Okay, this was a tremendous concern early on that states would lose uh, some of their power and authority, a significant amount of it, if there was a strong central federal government. And thus the Articles of Confederation, in being drafted as they were, uh, did not provide for a strong central government. Uh, it, was, it was a very weak uh, central government, uh, if, if any at all, that basically left most matters up to each individual state. And, and we know, if you know your history, you know that didn't work. Uh, it didn't work because there was no way of resolving conflicts between the states. There was no way, no, no methods within the Articles of Confederation uh, to help resolve those disputes that came up, whether they were economic, uh, whether they were over land, uh, you, each colony had its own money, uh, each colony had its own way of doing things internally, and then now you're trying to connect all of those across uh, a new nation. So, of course, out of this, you have Madison, you have Hamilton, uh, you have the writing of the Federalist Papers, the move to support the Constitution, a constitution that would, would create a stronger central government that would have the authority to protect the nation, to coin money, to uh, handle uh, uh, commerce to, and trade and so on, uh, to address some of these issues that were creating conflicts among the states. And so we turned our attention to that Constitution because in the Constitution itself, there are a, a number of things here that really lay out what we would call federalism and just basically define that is that relationship between each individual state or between the states and the federal government. Okay, how do we understand that relationship of power between a federal government uh, that is over all the land that is established by the Constitution and the power and authority of each individual states uh, in that what we call a union. And so this is what really makes our system of government uh, very unique. Uh, it, it is not a, a, a nation state to, to the degree of what we see in, in Europe. It is a nation that is a union of individual states and territories uh, that then come together and function uh, under a constitution that really outlines the boundaries, who is over what, what powers are delegated where, and so forth. And we, can't, we also have to see that this is not something that's been very, that has been static. It's been developing throughout the history of our country. We move from colonies uh, to states states in a union, but then that relationship has developed and changed as well. And that's important to understand. And we'll look at that here in a moment. 
but there are a couple of things I want to point out just very quickly uh, that are important to understand that provide the parameters for this relationship between states and the federal government. And so one of these is, as we look at the U.S. Constitution, is found in Article 1, uh, Clause 8, which is what we call the Necessary and Proper Clause. And so just let me read the text of this uh, so that you understand how this relates to that relationship that, uh, between states and federal government. So Congress shall have the power to make all laws, okay, this is Article 1, Section 8, to make all laws which shall be necessary and proper for carrying into execution the foregoing powers and all other powers vested by this Constitution in the government of the United States or in any department or officer thereof. Now, prior to this, you have the powers enumerated, the powers given to the executive branch, to the judicial branch, and to Congress. So it's very specific, especially when it comes to Congress, about what these powers are. And so now it's the, the what we call here the necessary, or what's also referred to as the elastic clause, is it gives Congress the power to make additional laws that are necessary and proper to carry out the power that it has been given. Okay, so the forethought here was that things are gonna come up. Uh, in the application of these powers of Congress, there are going to be things that we haven't thought about. There are going to be issues that are going to arise that Congress is going to have to address. So we need to give Congress the authority to make additional laws that are within the boundaries that are set by the Constitution that may not be explicitly stated in the Constitution. Okay, so that, that's, that's one uh, uh, part of this relationship, uh, the power that it gives the central federal government and Congress and the ability to continue to make laws within the, the, the carrying out of its duties of the, in, under the Constitution. There's another clause as well, and this is what we call the supremacy clause. So in Article 1 also, you have what is called the supremacy clause that reads as follows. This Constitution and the laws of the United States, which shall be made in pursuance thereof, and all treaties made or which shall be made under the authority of the United States, shall be the supreme law of the land, and the judges in every state shall be bound thereby anything in the Constitution or laws of any state to the contrary notwithstanding. So what this clause says basically is that the Constitution is the law of the land. It is the supreme law, and it's thus, it is this, by this document of the Constitution that all other laws should be reviewed and interpreted. Now, there will be ongoing struggles with this. This is what we'll see early on in the country as the role of the Supreme Court in reviewing what is, is to be considered constitutional or unconstitutional. And of course, there's things that have moved back and forth, debates that have been on that uh, throughout the history of our country. Uh, so again, something that's very dynamic, something that's in flux that that has changed. Another, uh, a couple of other things, and this is back, uh, also in the Constitution, and that is the uh, the amendments to the Constitution. So there's three amendments that are important to understand and to look at when understanding this relationship of federalism. Uh, the first in the Bill of Rights, the first two, the Ninth and Tenth Amendments, are as follows. The enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights 
shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. So this goes back in reference to those enumerated or the listed powers that were given to Congress or the authority given to the executive or judicial branches, uh, that uh, this does not mean that those powers, uh, just because it's not stated there, that Congress has those powers and can take those away from the people. Uh, It says here of certain rights. So we're talking about the Bill of Rights that that come before this uh, or that these uh, amendments are a part of shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. So it's the recognition that there are other rights that the people have that may be understood and interpreted over time that uh, are protected against the power of Congress. Again, the Bill of Rights, it's focused on liberties and rights of the people. The Second Amendment, uh, excuse me, the 10th Amendment, so one of the second of two, uh, says the powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. So again, the emphasis here is on the Constitution as the boundary, the guide, but it also is identifying that there are certain things that will remain under the authority of the states and of the people in the states. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about this in a, in a moment, but the, basically we're, we're looking here at that the, the majority of, of decisions and areas covered by government and by law, uh, especially early on in the country. Now we'll see how that will change, but they are, uh, they belong to the states. They're reserved to the states. And that's why we, we talk about reserve powers here, that, that those aren't taken by the federal government, that they remain under the control of the states and the people who live uh, in those states. Now, one final amendment, and I'm just kind of going through this quickly because I want to be able to move on and look at how this developed, is the 14th Amendment. So the 14th Amendment, which was adopted in 1868, states all persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. So the 14th Amendment and coming into play and and being adopted at the time that it did uh, was one that, uh, that extended the rights and, and liberties recognized by the Constitution uh, to, to every person. Of course, we know that at that time, we're talking about uh, uh, men, uh, we talk about women, but again, you know, rights will be something that continues to develop. The focus here was on extending constitutional rights related to life, liberty, and property uh, to Black Americans. Uh, and the uh, emphasis here was on uh, combating laws in states uh, that were aimed at segregation, that were aimed at restricting the rights and liberties uh, of people, no matter who they were, but you know, primarily uh, African-Americans. And so, of course, this will inaugurate an era there where there will be some greater freedom that will happen, but then all of that will be re-entrenched in the Jim Crow era, especially in the South, when 
states will pass laws that that reinstitute segregation uh, in both political, economic, and even social uh, uh, areas as well. But this amendment was for the purpose of expanding those protections of the Constitution and really clearly stating that because people are citizens of the country, then that means that states cannot create or uphold laws uh, that would infringe upon the rights of a citizen of the United States. Again, they're citizens of their state, but they're also citizens of the U.S. under the U.S. Constitution. So all of these combined have, have created a, a, a really a, the boundaries of this relationship, but those boundaries have been in flux throughout the history of our country. If we go back early on and we look at the uh, way that this was set up at the beginning and what we talk about in terms of, of spheres of authority, we have really what you could call a dual federalism. Early on, small federal government, the Constitution lays out the powers and responsibilities of that government. Everything else is left up to the states. So a dual federalism where there is some engagement, but it, it's, it's in two different spheres. The federal government has its area of operation the states have their areas of operation. What we'll see over time though, is what we call the development of cooperative federalism. And that is where state, federal, and even local will often collaborate, they'll cooperate, they will work together in various areas in terms of uh, applying and carrying out the law. Uh, now, we're not gonna get off into the complexity of all of that as much as I just wanna point out how much this has changed and why. When we go back to the uh, initial uh, era of the Constitution, we can see, yes, the federal government was over treaties, uh, over the military, over subsidies, tariffs, patents, currency, postal system, uh, all of these different areas that are enumerated in the Constitution. But everything else was under the states. And that this is a, a lot of area, if we think about it, uh, property law, marriage, insurance, estate and inheritance, public health, education, criminal justice, uh, construction codes, political parties, land use, water and mineral laws, local government. And even under local government, you had public works, licensing of public accommodations, uh, and, and so on. All of this, most of the areas of policy, most of the areas of, of the interaction with government would, would have were with the state or with local government. And so all of this was under their authority with very little in, intrusion on the part of the federal government. Now I use the word intrusion because some would look at it that way and this is what's entered into the dialogue uh, over time as we've seen uh, the expansion of federal authority. So let's talk just briefly about how that happens. Again, for those of you that are joining us, uh, we're looking at this in three parts today, and this first part is really a, a history of the development of federalism or the relationships between states and the federal government to then kind of understand what are some of the challenges that we're experiencing in addressing uh, the pandemic. So if we, if we go back and we look over time in the history of the country, there are a number of things, and I'm just going to list them off here, and I think you'll see how these would impact the role and relationship of the federal government. Uh, with the states. Of course, we talked about the Constitution. It will develop over time, the interpretation of the Constitution. 
and the additional amendments, first the Bill of Rights and then the 14th Amendment, but then also the courts come into play. So the courts become the means of interpreting the Constitution and the role and extent of authority of the federal government. And so through the courts, through major cases throughout the history of our country, you will see that authority uh, continue to expand. And I've already mentioned, we talk about the civil rights era. Uh, we see uh, uh, periods of time and major court cases uh, that will then strike down state laws uh, that are considered contrary to the constitution and thus extend the authority of federal government through Congress, led major legislation, whether it's the Air Quality Act, the Americans with Disability Act, the, um, uh, the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, uh, the uh, Affordable uh, Care Act. You see major pieces of legislation, major programs that will come into place on the part of federal government that will then extend the power of federal government more into areas of authority that were once regulated strictly to the states. National crisis. Okay, so we're talking about a pandemic right now, but you can look back to wars, to natural disasters, when you had states that were not able to uh, provide for uh, the people living within that state. Economic, the Great Depression, uh, the Great Recession. Again, major initiatives, programs, uh, billions, if not trillions of dollars will be spent by the federal government to address uh, these challenges. One in, in, in more recent history, 9-11. Here we have uh, a major crisis in our country in terms of a terrorist attack that will lead to a whole new branch or department of government, I should say, uh, that then impacts policy and impacts the relationship of government, but again, extends that authority. And now we have a pandemic, a global pandemic uh, that is creating tremendous crisis in a number of different ways, not just in healthcare, uh, but also economically. And then what is the role of the federal government? And again, as we saw with 9-11, this is something that will be worked out for not just years, but probably even uh, decades. And then the last one that I'll throw in on this list of ways in which the sphere of authority of the federal government has been expanded is funding the resources that federal government has had, whether it be in a time of crisis or it be programs that have come into place. Uh, for example, you look at Texas. Now, one third of our state budget is federal dollars. Resources that come back to Texas from the federal government to support federal programs. And these are everything from school lunches to uh, uh, Medicaid uh, to uh, 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 combating childhood diseases to transportation programs. I mean, there, there's tremendous amount of resources, one third of our state budget that are federal dollars that are directed toward a federal program. So funding is a way because that becomes very appealing to states. It can help them to pay for things. The challenge has been in this relationship is that states have, have have wanted more latitude instead of government, federal government programs being very specific, identifying resources have to be spent and used in this way. Uh, they have wanted more latitude and that has been a point of contention just as it has been when the federal government has, has stepped in and addressed very challenging issues. Again, I bring up the civil rights movement where and civil rights act, the voting rights act, where the states could, many states could not get it together to provide equality and access uh, to voting. 
or to, to kind of break down the barriers of segregation uh, with in, in social and economic and political areas. And the federal government had to step in and do that. Laws had to be passed. Court cases had to be decided that then forced states to, uh, dis, to start to pull apart those, uh, those elements of their laws and their, their function that uh, promoted uh, segregation. So all of these things over time, in, in terms of cooperative federalism, have led to that sphere of authority of federal government moving further and further into state government and into local government. Uh, and, and what we need to understand out of this is that there's a lot of that, as we look back over our history, that was necessary. I mean, there was a lot of that that was critical to the extending of rights and liberties, to addressing major crises, to addressing major uh, issues that needed federal support uh, that were very critical in the history of our country. Uh, there was a time too when state governments were just not as transparent or held as accountable uh, as they are today, where the, the, the need for oversight, the need for the federal government to hold some level of accountability or to step in and address issues that states were not willing to do. So it brings us to this, this modern era in the focus on states' rights. And so just to kind of conclude this segment, I just want to point out a couple of things, and that is there has been a, a somewhat of a trend. We can't say that it's well established yet, but there has been a trend to move back and try to focus more on giving states latitude uh, to emphasizing states' rights and trying to, to accommodate regional uh, but state differences in the way different areas are approached. And there's, there's two aspects to this that I just want to point out, uh, and two examples, really. One was with the Affordable Care Act, where states had the option to opt in or opt out of the Affordable Care Act uh, to, in terms of managing it within the state uh, or, or letting the federal government do that. Uh, another one was uh, with education funding, where states were given the opportunity to develop a plan of their own and thus receive the funding from the federal government uh, if they were able to uh, show progress with their, the plans they implemented. Uh, we've seen some things that have moved away from this very kind of rigid structuring of federal programs that then required all states to do things the same way. But it has been very limited because we've also seen in the last 30 years the significant growth of federal government. This is not in any way slowed down how fast the federal government is growing in terms of its size and scope, in terms of new agencies like Homeland Security. I'm sure after, after we get through this pandemic, we're gonna see a significant growth at the federal level in public health uh, in, in focusing on how do we address this and how do we prepare in the future. So there is this tension that we continue to live with in this relationship of federalism, and that is where what is the, the, the limit of the extent of federal power over against the powers and the, 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 the role that, that state governments have. Again, state governments still have a tremendous amount of authority over a large number of areas, but it's very evident that many of those areas, education, transportation, uh, criminal justice systems, uh, uh, healthcare, all of these areas are impacted in some way uh, by federal government, by laws, by court cases, uh, by uh, that kind of constitutional foundation uh, that then has changed over time 
that has extended that authority of the federal government. So this is the first part of it. We're going to take a short break and we will come back because I want to look at now in this current context of the pandemic, what let's bring these two together. What, what are some of the unique challenges that we see in navigating a pandemic within a federalist system? We'll be right back. Whenever news breaks. First in Minneapolis where he died, and then as the days went on across America. FSN is there. Abbott responding to the coronavirus is a big deal, a task worth his government's time and attention. KTRL 90.5, classy radio for the Cross Timbers region and your only local source for feature story news. Join us all week on 90.5 for the latest updates from FSN. T for Texas is a Texas-based history podcast from historian Dr. T. Lindsey Baker. Find a new episode every Thursday morning wherever you get your podcasts. Politics can be confusing, but On Politics with Eric Morrow has your back. Follow the show on Facebook. Search On Politics with Eric Morrow to stay up to date with the show and all the sources to follow right along. Welcome back to this edition of On Politics right here on KTRL 90.5 FM. Uh, today we are talking about federalism, uh, which may not sound like that interesting of a topic, but the theme here is, uh, is the Trump administration, the Trump presidency, a victim of federalism? And the reason why I'm asking that question is that we're looking at the challenges of navigating a crisis like we're in now with this pandemic in a federalist system. And how unique or different is that uh, from uh, what other countries and how they've addressed it who may not have quite the same system? I mean, we do have a very unique system that is a union of states and thus various levels of government. And of course, you look across the Atlantic to Europe uh, and you will see that, yes, there's levels of government. In fact, even more levels when you bring in the European Union and then the government of a nation state and the government of a, uh, of a province or so like in the UK where you have European Union, United Kingdom, uh, Scotland, uh, and then even down to the city and uh, regional and city level. So there, there are some comparisons to be made, but there's also some differences here uh, in terms of scope, because looking at the size of our country geographically uh, and in terms of our population, but then also, the, as we talked about in the first segment, and if you missed that, I would encourage you to listen to it on SoundCloud after the show or download as a podcast, uh, but where we look back at how this relationship has developed. And so in the second segment of the show, I want to point out uh, some of the unique challenges that I see that are in this mix of a pandemic within a federalist system. And then we'll wrap up the show talking about uh, some of the unique uh, uh, things here or some of the things that I'm seeing as to why uh, it, it's, it's kind of a no-win situation uh, in, in some sense, at least in terms of the current uh, dynamics that we have at work here uh, and I don't want to be doom and gloom. I just uh, looking at it in terms of the ability of our government to navigate this in a cohesive and effective way. 
Uh, and and what, what we're doing and what we see happening now is that we're learning on the go. Uh, we're, we're trying to adapt and change and adjust as we see this thing move around the country and manifest itself in different ways. Uh, and, and really, it's just a hodgepodge of state responses with some federal engagement as well. Uh, why did we get to this point? Why is this so unique? So the first point under this and the challenges of this pandemic in a federalist system is that this event that we're seeing, this pandemic, uh, is, is certainly global, but it's impacting everyone. It, it, and it will before this is all over. Even the most remote places uh, in this country, there will be some impact before it's all said and done. Uh, which makes it a little different than 9-11. I, I was living in New York during 9-11 and, and it certainly saw the physical uh, impact of the destruction and the loss of life. And of course, it had an impact on the nation as a whole as being an attack on, on the nation. But we really have no modern precedent for a crisis like this in this country, where it has such broad impact down to the every, each and every uh, community uh, almost. And so one of the challenges that we see in this is that we are not very quick and decisive uh, when it's come to this. And our federalist system almost has that built in, that, that we're, we're going to be just slow, often for the sake of deliberation, uh, but we're, we have to figure out a way that, that works and that accommodates the different interests and concerns. And in this case, the different states, uh, different regions, political cultures, and so on. And we also have a federal government that in a situation like this, that is very slow to respond. Uh, you know, how, how, what should our response be? What's, what would be uh, uh, effective or not? Um, we'll add in the politics here in a moment, and that makes it even more challenging. Uh, whereas we see in, in other countries, and especially in some of those in Europe that have had success in combating this, very quick and decisive decision-making. Uh, and whether politics was mixed in or not, uh, you know, that, that can be analyzed later as much as people were making decisions much more on trying to focus on health and safety issues and to address the concerns of people uh, much quicker and knowing that, okay, that could be costly because what we're doing may not work or we may not understand all of this yet, but here are the things that we need to do right now. Uh, this the size of this, the scope of it, the diversity of our country as a whole, uh, the, 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 this makes it very, very challenging uh, to do something decisively and quickly on a national level. Okay, so th this was already working against, I think, the Trump administration, which had a leaning toward, well, let, let's, you know, early on, let's let the states, we'll, we'll do some things, we'll facilitate certain things, but this is really up to the states. Well, again, this, this virus knows no uh, borders, okay? It doesn't look at the United States and say, well, we're only gonna infect here and there. Uh, it's, it's all over and thus it is, does have a national impact. The second part of this in terms of a federalist system is that we've always had this idea that the states are laboratories of government. Let's look at what's working and what's not working. And at times we will see things that may work on a national level that we can move to that level and apply to all the states. It's not the other way around, even though we've had programs initiated from the federal government, but many of those programs on the national level have come from uh, programs that initially started in the states. And so again, this mentality is not the national government initiating the response, 
but that the states here, especially in the area of public health, here is a public health issue, which is primarily the responsibility of the states. And so why should the national government really take the lead in responding to this when uh, it is up to the individual states? The problem with that is, is that we have various levels of public health. It's a very diverse system throughout the country in terms of its adequacy. And so something like this, many public health systems were not prepared to address. Another aspect, uh, we have divided government, divided government at the national level in, the, in a time of a very polarizing presidency. So this gets some into the politics of it and some into our current situation. But here in our, in our federalist system, uh, we have this mix at times. Uh, and then the politics comes into play both at the federal level and the state level. Uh, where you would have states that would say, well, no, we don't want the federal government to be involved. In fact, we, you know, and, and Texas is a good example of that. We want federal government to keep a distance, give us the resources we need and let us work out our own plan, where you would have other states that would be looking to the federal government and saying, look, we need a coordinated response. And that would certainly impact based on who was in the White House and how they would view that role of federal government in a crisis like this. Talking about the politics, yes, it is a mix of politics. Uh, it, it focuses on the issue here is the political agenda uh, of uh, how, how this will impact uh, a base, a voting base. I mean, this comes into play whether we like it or not with an issue that is a matter of life and death for many people. But here what we see is uh, a political ideology or a focus that looks at, okay, what, what's a win in this situation? And so I think initially for the Trump administration, with their, their uh, emphasis on the role of states, uh, this was a win because it was saying, okay, the federal government is not its role to step in, take over, manage, uh, uh, tell the rest of the, tell the country what to do, tell states what to do. Uh, I think the, the politics of this played very heavily uh, in that decision. And because we had this strong kind of strain of ideas about government that, that are wrapped up in federalism, that states should have rights, that states should kind of control uh, this area of policy, that states should be at the forefront of responding with the support of the federal government. Uh, I think that played into this as well. This is one I've already mentioned, and uh, this number five on my list, but that is uh, the whole healthcare and government uh, relationship. Uh, public health, as I said, has been a primary concern of states. And because this is a, a health issue, it, get, it, it really gets mixed up in the uh, short-term history and politics of how we've addressed uh, public health. Uh, and so because there has been a, 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 an agenda with the, pub, with the Trump administration in trying to kind of disassemble the Affordable Care Act, trying to, uh, to, to get federal government unentangled uh, from all of that, uh, uh, that this has had an impact on this as well, because it's seen uh, not as a, a crisis issue for the country as a whole, uh, it's it seen more of, okay, this is a public health issue, uh, and instead of treating it like uh, an attack or a war where you mobilize all the resources in the country around defeating this and getting through it, again, then it falls on the states for that responsibility. And then the other element, which I've, I've touched on in a number of these points, or the, the final one I have here, is political culture. 
uh, th this becomes very challenging as we've already seen around the country where you have people who are uh, kind of anti-government directive mandate government doesn't need to tell us what to do. We can get through this. We can, we need to decide what we want to do. This idea of government stepping in uh, and, and requiring wear masks or uh, quarantining or stay at home orders. Uh, there, there's a, a strong strain of, of anti-government sentiment uh, in relation to that uh, around the country uh, in, in many states. And so this is a force that has to be combated as well that fits right in with this, this description of federalism and understanding this relationship between state and federal governments. Uh, and we've seen it, we're seeing it now, it's impacting the polling numbers. Uh, it's impacting um, uh, even, even decisions. I mean, I think one we can look at here recently with Trump, President Trump announcing that the in-person convention for the Republican National Committee will not be held in Jacksonville. They'll have some in-person in North Carolina, but most of it will be virtual, uh, kind of uh, acquiescing to the rising infection numbers in Florida and, and, and other factors that are challenging uh, the, the holding this public and open and uh, large attendance or the fact that attendance might not even be uh, possible uh, given some of the recent political rallies and what we've seen happen there. Uh, these, these, are, these are issues and challenges that factor into this as well. Uh, that are, are are playing over against that political culture and it, it both having to deal with the reality of the pandemic, but then also the political consequences uh, within a federalist system. So in closing today, I want to turn now to my question, is the Trump presidency a victim of federalism? Uh, and what I mean by victim is uh, they didn't see this coming. Uh, it, it, it comes uh, out of nowhere and has an impact, even though, you know, there were some that are saying they were predicting it. This may eventually happen. There's something going on. Slow to respond. Uh, it, it, it happens. And then, of course, take, is taking a major toll, both in terms of, of uh, health uh, services uh, and, and medical care, but also economically as well. Uh, is the Trump administration a victim? It, does it mean that there was really nothing they could do? Uh, given the, the dimensions, the parameters, given this federalist system that we're in. And, and so I, I think that, that a case can be made for that. I think hindsight will be better when we get away from this and we're able to look back. But I think part of this falls on the Trump administration itself and their understanding of this history of, of federalism and the complexity of it, and then being able to navigate it. Okay, so one of the critical things that, that may have helped uh, and respond to this would be trying to look back at how this relationship has worked and not worked, and then trying to work with state governments to figure out a way forward to have a more united, collaborative effort in dealing with the virus. I don't, I don't think anything would have happened from the president dictating to the states and basically saying federal government is ordering stay-at-home orders wearing of masks and so on, as we saw in some countries in Europe, that that the, the reaction to that would have been uh, maybe as much or significant as, as what the reaction is now and just trying to get through it. And that a lot of people would have said, no, we're, we're not going to do that. Or what are you doing telling us what to do? Uh, it, it would have made it even more difficult to address uh, the health concerns. So I think the, the, the challenge here is understanding that relationship and then being able to work within it 
in collaboration with state governments for the best interest of the country. The second reason why I think they're a victim, it's the role of the states. Uh, the states themselves have to be willing, state leadership, political leadership has to be willing and seeing this as a crisis to be able to navigate it. And I think that was a challenge for some areas early on. I don't think you would have had the level of collaboration uh, that was needed unless it was by pressure and all the states were saying, all the governors and everyone were saying, okay, yes, we, we've got to work on a plan for this instead of saying, well, no, that's a New York problem. That's a California problem. Now it's a Texas problem and a Florida problem. The third, uh, and to wrap this up, is political. Um, and that, that goes back again to the most consistent thing we've seen from President Trump throughout his presidency, and that is his alignment with his base, with the base of people that, that voted him into office or that, that core of that base. And here he's been very consistent. And so his approach to this, uh, I think, at least up to this point, we're starting to see some changes, like I said, with the convention uh, that may be a reflection of his uh, decline in the, in the overall polls. But I think that he, he remained consistent with uh, his approach to many other issues. He had a divided Congress. He's got to attract his base and pointing to, well, uh, look, I'm not letting federal government take over here. I'm letting the states handle this. This is much more in line with his base in, in what he campaigned on and what he said about Washington and said what he will do. Um, and so he, he, he maintains that, that line. And I think that's where it was, a uh, again, a kind of a lack of understanding of the complexity of this issue, where probably more could have been done in terms of collaboration and working with the states to address this crisis. But it just was not the environment. It was not the presidency. It was not the right factors. It was the focus was not where it was. The understanding of that fed, of federalism and its development in this country uh, in order to make all this work. Uh, so um, I hope uh, that you, you can engage with some of this. I'll, I'll post some things on the Facebook page that may help for additional reading, but I think it's something that we have to look at because it does impact how we navigate these kinds of crises going forward and how we understand kind of the political aspects of it in terms of that relationship between federal government and state government. I want to thank you for joining me today right here on Politics. Welcome you back each week at noon right here on KTRL 90.5 FM. And we'll look forward to more dialogue and discussion on the pressing political issues of the day. Thank you for joining us today. Tarleton Radio Network podcast with production from AJ Heyer and Taylor Welch. Find more great shows by searching Tarleton Radio Network wherever you get your podcasts.